Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Tyler. So we're going to take some time now to look more closely at this word from God, this psalm. In 1965, the Beatles released one of their many iconic songs. Uh, and the title for the song that was released in 1965 goes by one word, help. Now, I'm not going to sing the song because I don't want to get us a, get us a slew of bylaw infractions, but in case you're not familiar with this song, let me just read some of the lyrics for you. It says, help me if you can, I'm feeling down, and I do appreciate you being around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me. Now, John Lennon, the, the Beatles' front man and the writer of the song, describes help as one of his favorite songs, saying it was one of his most honest and genuine songs that he ever wrote. Now, whether or not you like the song or even are familiar with the song, I think we can all relate to the genuineness of the lyrics of this song. To experience seasons of helplessness is an experience common to all people. The, the cry for help in the song is the cry for the overwhelmed young mother, the anxious teenager, the overworked employee, and the hungry newborn. It's the cry of the isolated, the sick, the poor, and even world-famous musicians. And Christians are in no way exempt from these experiences of helplessness. Christ, after all, told his, told his disciples that in this world, you will face tribulation. The Christian life is one filled with moments of helplessness. The question, though, is how do we respond in those moments of helplessness? Our psalm today is written by a psalmist crying for help. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? While it was written thousands of years ago, God in his goodness has given us this psalm to help Christians in our own moments of need. So let's take a moment to look at this psalm. As we look at this psalm, we're going to do it so in three parts today. We're going to first look at the problem facing the writer of this psalm. Second, we'll look where the psalmist looks for help. And then finally, we'll see the, a description of this help. So the, the problem, the help, and the help described. Those are our three sections today. Now to understand the problem facing the psalmist, it's important to understand this is a song of ascent. The songs of ascent are about uh, 15 psalms from Psalm 120, 120 to 134. And so this is the second psalm of ascent, song of ascent. And they were sung by the Jews as a journey on foot to Jerusalem for annual feasts like the Passover. Now, Jerusalem was built on a hill, and it was situated in the hill country of Judah. So as travelers journeyed to Jerusalem, they would travel up, or they would ascend the hills of Judah to reach Jerusalem. Hence, the songs of ascent. Now, if it helps you to imagine what it would be like to do this, imagine the journey, what the journey would be like if we forego our cars and decide to take a hike from Ottawa to the hills of Quebec to mont -Tremblant. Now, some of you are probably already thinking that, that hiking from Ottawa to Montremblant is a terrible idea, and you'll probably understand why this guy's crying out for help. But even, be, even beyond the rigors and the length of such a journey, 
there's also dangers that faced the psalmist as he was traveling to Jerusalem. There are risks of attacks from animals. There's a risk of slipping on slippery so slopes on ascents or descents. And there's even a risk from robbers or thieves who might attack on the journey. So as, as the psalmist and other Jews headed on, this, on their journey to Jerusalem, they looked to the hills. They, as they looked to the hills, they would be reminded of these threats that faced them. They might even be thinking of stories from previous years of others who had gone to Jerusalem and had experienced uh, different forms of attack, uh, were injured, were robbed, or even perhaps died on their journey to Jerusalem. Mixed in with the excitement of going to Jerusalem to the holy city would be a strong sense of, strong sense of fear for these Jews as they headed out. So due to these threats, the Jews would often travel in groups on their journey to Jerusalem. We see an example of this actually when Jesus and his family I'm going to pause for a sec with this plane flies overhead here. We see an example of this when the Jews, when Jesus and his family travel to Jerusalem in, in the Gospel accounts. And he goes with his family, with a group of friends and family, to Jerusalem and back to Nazareth in this group. And as these groups would make this dangerous journey to Jerusalem, they would sing Psalm 121 to each other to remind themselves where their help comes from. Now as Christians... We do not go on annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem, but we're all on a different pilgrimage of sorts. A pilgrimage to the heavenly Jerusalem, that city that God will establish when Christ returns, where Christians will dwell with God forever. The journey of life for Christians as we go towards the heavenly Jerusalem is full of hills of trouble. We face worldly challenges, threats to our health, our wealth, relationships, etc. We also face spiritual challenges. Sin is at war with us. We face persecution because of our faith. And the enemy is constantly trying to derail us. So as we move on to our next couple sections, looking at the help and the help described, there's a lot that we as Christians can learn from the psalm, even if we never, ever, ever want to take a hike from Ottawa to Mont Tremblant. So let's move on to verse 2 and look at where this help comes from. In verse 2 we read, My help comes from the Lord, who made the heaven who made heaven and earth. Now, it probably comes as little surprise that the psalmist says that the help comes from the Lord, from God. What else is a psalmist going to say? What else is a Jewish psalmist going to say about where his help comes from? And we might be tempted to gloss over this line um, since it seems so predictable. But I want to slow down for a second, and before we move on, look at a few things here, reflect on a few things in this verse. The first thing I want to reflect on is to take note of the way God is described in this verse. Now, there are many names that are used to describe God in the Hebrew Bible. But the name that is used in verse 2 and throughout the psalm is Lord, all caps, which in Hebrew is uh, the name Yahweh. And this is the personal name for God. Unlike other more generic names for God, this name indicates the relationship and the closeness of God to his people. The psalmist is reminding himself that his help is not from some distant, unknown God, but from a God who is known, a God who has shown his love and care for his people in the past. But the psalmist doesn't end his description of God simply with God's personal name. But he also goes on to say that the Lord is the one who made heaven and earth. It's interesting that the psalmist includes this line, because the name Yahweh implies that the psalmist is, is calling out to the creator of heaven and earth. To add on this line as no new information. 
Its inclusion must then be because the psalmist wants to highlight this about God. So the natural question that arises is, why is the psalmist highlighting this fact about God? Why not highlight that Yahweh is mighty, or that there is no God like Yahweh? Why does he highlight that God is the creator of heaven and earth? The psalmist does this because, as a reminder that though he is facing threats and trials, his help, Yahweh, is the one who has created all things, including the hills the pilgrims must ascend. And if God is the creator, then he has control over all these things. Derek Kidner, a Bible scholar writing on this verse, said, The thought of this verse leaps beyond the hills to the universe, beyond the universe to its maker. Here is living help, primary, personal, wise, measurable. This verse reminds, us, reminds the psalmist, and also us, to look beyond the things that threaten us and look to the one who created all things. He can, come, he can overcome our problems. He is the one we ought to look to first and foremost for our help. Now I say first and foremost because this psalm is not telling us that we cannot use worldly means to find help. The psalm was, was sung by groups of people as they traveled together as a way to find protection on the dangerous road. God has given us worldly means to help and protect us, and it's not wrong to use them, but they are not our ultimate help. As the psalmist looks to the thread ahead, the psalmist is surrounded by worldly help in the form of traveling companions, but yet the psalmist does not look to them for his ultimate help. He looks to God. And similarly, when we are faced with worldly threats and trials, we can make use of worldly helps. But this psalm reminds us to look to Yahweh, the God who knows us and has created the universe. Yahweh is our ultimate help. He is the one we need to cry out to. Now, this leads me to the second thing I want to reflect on regarding this verse. I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, what I've said is not surprising to you or in any way controversial. Christians understand that God is their help. But what we need to reflect on is, do we believe it? I'm not asking if we agree with it, but do our hearts genuinely believe it? When troubles come, do, your, do our actions show that God is our ultimate help? When our investments tank, what's our first reaction? Do we try to fix it on our own and or call up our financial planner hectic, uh, frantically? Or do we look to God and ask him to provide and lead us? When our children are sick or struggling, do we pray or do we first think through our own plan for how to help them? When we're struggling with sin, do we think of ways to fix it and promise ourselves that we'll, never do, we'll do better next time, we'll never do it again? Or do we bring it to God first? If you're anything like me, our actions show that we struggle to look to God as our help. It was particularly humbling this past week as I was working on this sermon. I was struggling to bring it all together. And worries, worries were beginning to set in for me as I was working on it. And even though I was writing a sermon on even though I was writing a sermon that tells us that God is our help, despite this, my instinct was to look within. I thought to myself, if I'm a little bit more disciplined, if I carve out some more time here or there, I can get through this. It took me a day or two to, while working on the sermon to stop and look to God for help. And now maybe I'm just particularly slow and dull, but my guess is that we've all been there before. Stubbornly looking within or to those around us for help with little thought of God. Now, if you can relate to that, the good news is you're not alone. This is not just a problem for you or for me or for us, 
But this text shows us that this is a problem also for the psalmist. I say this because as we move on to our third section, we will look at the final three quarters of the psalm. And what we find in these final three quarters of the psalm is that the psalmist is more or less just unpacking verse 2 and reminding us again and again and again who our help is. Now, James K. Smith, an author and a professor uh, in the U.S., uh, wrote in his book, You Are What You Love, that we often view ourselves as brains on a stick. That is, all we need is the right information, and then we can process it and apply it, and we're good to go. But Smith argues that this is not how humans actually work. It's not what we think. If it was, losing weight would be so much easier, right? We all know we just need to eat healthy and be active, and then we'll lose some weight. And similarly, if all we needed was the right information, this psalm could end at verse 2. Our help is from God, the creator of heaven and earth. Simple enough, right? Simple. We, just can, we can move on to the next psalm. But losing weight is harder than knowing what to do, and looking to God for help is harder than knowing that he is the creator of heaven and earth. The psalmist acknowledges the latter and spends the next three quarters of this psalm reminding and expanding on who our help is. John Calvin, writing on this next section, these, these final three quarters of the, of the psalm, writes, Such repetition seems at first sight superfluous. But when we consider how difficult it is to correct our distrust, it will be, easy, it will be easily perceived that the psalmist does not improperly dwell upon the praise of the divine providence. We need to be reminded of these things. So we're going to look at this final section, the help described, and we'll look at it in three, sections, in three parts and see that God is always watchful, always present, and he's not going anywhere. It's going to sound repetitive, but we need to hear this, so stick with me. So God is always watchful. We see this in verses 3 and 4. We see in these verses that Yahweh is described as one who won't let the psalmist's foot be moved, and as one who neither slumbers or sleeps. As the psalmist heads on the dangerous road to Jerusalem, with many dangerous ascents and descents, the psalmist is reminded that God will watch over the steps they take. Unlike the other gods of the other nations, the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's always awake and never distracted. He will keep his people safe. He will keep their feet from stumbling. Now, the Christian walk for us is one filled with many things that can cause us to stumble as well. Sin seeks to trip us up everywhere we go. And at times the struggle with sin can be overwhelming. But this psalm reminds us to look to him. The one who began the good work in you, he will bring it to completion. So are you struggling with your sin? Behold him. Confess to him and trust him. He will not let your foot be moved. He will not let sin destroy you. So we see that those are the first, three, first two verses of this section. The next two verses, verses 5 and 6, we see that God is always present. These verses describe God as our shade on our right hand that protects us from the sun by day in the moon by night. Like a mother hen spreading her wings over her chicks, God spreads his shade over his people to protect them. These verses are describing constant protection. Nothing during the day and nothing at night will strike his people. He will, he will protect from the overpowering threats of day and the insidious threats of night. All day and all night, he will protect his people. This, Im this image of shade in our right hand also denotes closeness. 
He's not some far-off God who comes in and out of our lives. His protection is close by. He is near to us. He hovers over us. I need to apologize in advance for this really nerdy reference to Lord of the Rings, but if you were to compare God's presence to Lord of the Rings, his presence is less like Gandalf, that, that flashy, powerful wizard who comes in and out of the story to protect the main protagonist, Frodo. And God's presence is more like Samwise, that faithful companion who's there every step of the way at Frodo's right hand, even when Frodo doesn't want him there. This psalm is telling us that God's presence is like that constant, faithful companion. I think I need to pause here for a second. Imagine for many of you, for many of us, this idea of God's constant presence can cause some tension because it doesn't always seem to line up with our lived experience. Many of, many of us have experienced seasons of, or, of weeks, months, and even years where God has felt distant and far off. And maybe that's your experience right now. You feel like God is not nearby. He's, he, feels, he feels far off. So what do we do with this tension between this verse and our lived experiences at times? I want to say three things quickly on that, on that, far, on that front. The first thing I think is important to note is that this is a normal experience for Christians to go through. Scripture is full of people wrestling with what seems like God's absence. The book of Lamentations and many of the Psalms, like Psalm 10, Psalm 13, and Psalm 88, are great examples for their honest wrestling with God, with God and where he's at. But in these, in these Psalms remind us that it's not unusual for Christians to wonder if God is, is actually present. However, the second thing I want to note as well is that God's presence is not always what we imagine it will be. God spoke to Elijah not in the storm or the earthquake, or in the fire, but in a whisper. God's presence is not always flashy or even noticeable for us, but that does not mean he's not there. We need to be careful not to let our, our feelings and, ex and experiences dictate what we believe in God. Now, I'm not saying feelings or experiences are bad or anything like that. God has given us these things. They're good for us. These are good things. But feelings and experiences can, can, be, can, cannot, cannot, can be deceptive at times. And so we need to be careful, and we need to look to God's word to, to, to rest on what we believe in, to shape what we believe in. And the final thing I'd also say is that it's likely that even this psalmist who wrote this psalm wrestled with these doubts. Heading on the road to Jerusalem, his lips may have been quivering with fear as he sang this song. This isn't a psalm to be sung when we are firm in our faith, although we certainly can. This psalm is a psalm that's meant to be sung in those moments of trial and tribulation. Are you questioning God's presence in your life right now? Read this psalm. Meditate on it. Pray it and sing it. And as you do, ask God to help your unbelief by drilling the truth of this psalm deep into your hearts. So we see that God is always watchful. He's always present. I return to the final two verses of the psalm to see the God that is not going anywhere. Now, the promise of God's protection in this psalm and help are remarkable throughout this psalm, but they reach a climax in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 tells us that the Lord will keep you from all evil. That is remarkable. And depending on how you read it, it may even seem unrealistic. What does God mean that He's going to keep us from all evil. Christians clearly experience evil in many different ways in our lives. We're not immune from health scares in our lives. We experience death of loved ones. We lose jobs. We have relational conflict. I could go on. 
So how can the psalmist say that the Lord will keep you from all evil? I think the key to understanding this is to look carefully at the word keep in this psalm. It's a word that's been used throughout this psalm so far. You see it in verse 3, he who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, he who keeps Israel. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. In verse 8, the Lord will keep you going out and coming in. Often when we read the, the words or the phrase keep from, we understand it as keep away from, keep separate from. For example, I don't want my child to fall off the edge of a cliff, so I'm going to keep them away from the edge of the cliff. But the idea of keep in the psalm is different than that. Perhaps the best way to understand the word keep is to imagine a medieval castle keep. The keep in a medieval castle is a place of refuge, as that strong tower. When everything else had fallen, you ran to the keep to keep you safe. That's kind of the idea of keep in this passage. When God says he'll keep you from all evil, it does not mean that no evil will come to you, but rather that God will protect you. He'll take care of you in the midst of evil. He will be your strong tower, your place of refuge. The psalmist's journey into Jerusalem was not expecting a trouble-free journey, but rather that when the trouble came, that God would take care of them. So the psalmist is declaring here that God will keep them safe from all evil. But we should notice there's something important that changes in verses 7 and 8. I don't know if you've caught it. But the prior verses are all in the present tense. Verses 7 and 8 are future tense. He will keep your life. It's not simply a protection for the future journey to Jerusalem, but also for the rest of life. In verse 8 it says, The Lord will keep your going out and coming in, from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist is telling us that God will keep us safe through all the trials and troubles we will face. From the simple troubles of day-to-day -day life to the, the traumatic life-altering troubles we may face. From the sin that so easily entangles and ensnares us to the enemy's attempts to discourage and derail us. God will carry us through these things and bring us safely home to that new Jerusalem, that heavenly Jerusalem. So to recap here, we see that God, the creator of heaven and earth, is our help. He's always watchful, he's always present, and he's not going anywhere. Now, as you hear this, you may be thinking to yourself, this all seems way too good to be true. Why does God care for me like this? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know all my failures? Doesn't he know that I do not deserve it? And you know what? You'd be right to say that. You do not, and I definitely do not, deserve this help. But if I can turn your attention back to this verse, to verse 7, I will tell you why God is our help, and why we can trust, why we trust him. Verse 7 tells us that the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Do you want to know why we can trust God to be our help? The Lord will keep you from all evil because he experienced ultimate evil for you. The Lord will keep your life because he gave his life for you. At the cross, Christ bore the evil we deserved and died the death that we had earned. At the cross, our sins were wiped away, so now we can call on God, our Heavenly Father, to be our help. At the cross, God shows his love for us. The Father did not spare his only Son for our, for our sake. The cross shows us that we can trust him no matter what life throws our way.
If you're familiar with the life of Corrie ten Boom, Corrie ten Boom lived during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands during World War II. She and her family risked their lives to save hundreds of Jews from the, from the Nazis. And because of it, her father was imprisoned and died shortly afterwards. And she and her sister were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. And there, her sister died due to mal malnutrition and the, the, the myriad of diseases that were uh, found within that camp. And, and Corey would have also probably died if she wasn't miraculously released just 12 days later due to a clerical error. Corey ten Boom experienced evil that many of us, by God's grace, have never had to experience. With, this, with these experiences in her life, Corey ten Boom spoke these words. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. Jesus told his disciples, in the world you will, you will have tribulation. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, what Corey ten Boom, what the psalmist, what Christ, what the gospel tells us is that we will face dark tunnels and hills full of trouble in our lives, in our journey to see Christ in the New Jerusalem. These are unavoidable. But they would also tell us, they would urge us to read, to sing, and to pray this psalm so that we would lift our eyes above the hills and look to our God and remind ourselves of how great our help is. Would you pray with me that God will give us strength to do, to do so? Gracious God, Heavenly Father, creator of heaven and earth, we praise you because you are always watchful, you are always present, you are not going anywhere. You are our help. We acknowledge that. But Lord, we also struggle to believe it. Lord, we need your grace. Help us to believe these truths. Drill these truths deep into our hearts so that we can cry out to you in those moments of need and look to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.